You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Barry. For those of you who don't know me, I've, I've had the privilege of teaching here a few times before. I'm the associate pastor out at the Henderson campus, and it's a great privilege to be your tour guide through the scriptures this morning. This morning, we'll be studying Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, if you want to turn there on your Bibles or your devices. And first of all, I want to say it's such a privilege to be here. It's great to celebrate this, my favorite time of the year with you. And I know you're thinking, oh, that's so sweet. What a spiritual man. It's Advent. And he's so great to be here. I'm talking World Cup soccer. It's the greatest time. I'm one of those weird Americans that was playing soccer back in the 70s and do love the sport. So it's fun. It means I don't get much sleep this time of year because the games are starting at four, but a lot of fun. But anyway, it's great to be here with you. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, and I'm going to go ahead and read that portion right now, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee." And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Sir, we thank you for the opportunity to continue to study, uh, to continue to worship you through the study of your word now. And so as your living word is taught and received, we pray that we might hear directly from, from you through the person and power and ministry of your Holy Spirit that the truths and the principles and the beauties of your word might come to light to us this morning. And this we ask in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those in agreement said, Amen. Amen. So obviously today we begin the Advent series. We're starting a five-lesson series where we look at the reaction of several individuals to the coming of Jesus to planet Earth. Some of these we'll look at as an individual. Some of them we'll look at as a group. And so we're going to begin this morning with Herod the Great. Then next week we'll look at Mary. Then the week after that the wise men or the magi. Then the shepherds. Then John the Baptist. Today we'll look at Herod the Great's reaction. And as you can see... Of all the people that were studying the reactions, I get the villain. I get the bad guy. And, and uh, Pastor Clay, I just want to thank you for that in advance and, and say uh, that 
that, uh, that I owe you, and, I, and uh, as the Lord says, I will repay vengeance as mine. <laughs> but before we can delve into the text on Herod's reaction, we need to do a little background on the man himself, as well as a quick overview of verses 1 through 12. So we're picking it up halfway through chapter 2 of Matthew. I want to just do a quick overview of chapter or the earlier part of chapter 2 without stepping on that study, which is coming in two weeks. So Let's do that. Verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see that about two years after Jesus was born, wise men, also known as Magi, from the east arrived in Jerusalem looking for the one who had been born as king of the Jews. And so from, from their home far to the east, they had seen a peculiar star rise. And for some reason, and again, we don't know why. Now, the kingdom that's to the east, I'm going to talk a little about, about that this morning, is the is the Parthian kingdom, and it's kind of like the great-grandchild of the Persian kingdom of old that we see in the New Testament. And so it may be, and this, again, this is just speculation, that Daniel, who was once the head over all the wise men of the east in Babylon, may have given a prophecy that carried down far to the east, and so they knew that the, when this star arose, the king of the Jew would be, Jews would be born. That's just speculation, but that's about the best we could do. But they knew that was a sign that the king of the Jews had been born. And so they put a caravan together, and as I'm going to show later, probably a heavily armed large caravan together, and it made the long trip to Jerusalem, believing that would be where the king of the Jews would be born, which only makes sense. Then in verses 3 through 6, we saw that all of Herod and Jerusalem were greatly troubled at their arrival. And so Herod summoned all the chief priests and scribes, those who actually knew the scriptures. And why does Herod have to ask them? Because he doesn't care about the scriptures. He doesn't know what's in them. He doesn't care. So he has to ask those who do. And he inquired of them of where the Christ or the Messiah would be born. And of course, he was told by them that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem about... Um, 14 miles south of Jerusalem, in accordance with the prophecy of Micah 5.2. That takes us to verses 7 through 9, where Herod then inquires of the wise men, of the Magi, how long ago did you see this sign, the star appear? And he learned that it was about two years earlier. He then sent them to Bethlehem with instructions, what a good man he is, to return to him, so that he then might go and worship this king. Of course, he's going to go worship the king. And then the star that led them had led them from the east, which is interesting. So it's leading them from the east to the west, now changes tack and leads them to the south toward Bethlehem. And they came to rest over the house where young Jesus was staying. Now, I am so sorry, not so sorry though, to mess up your Christmas cards this year, which typically show the wise men and the shepherds and the angels and the star all gathered over the stable at one time. But in fact, what we learn is that the Magi show up quite a bit later and Jesus is actually in a home in Bethlehem at that time. But it's okay if that's on your Christmas cards, we all get it. Taking us into the last verses 10 through 12. And then when they went inside of the home, that being the Magi, they saw the child with his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. And they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod in Jerusalem, they went back to their country by another way. And so that's our quick overview of the earlier part of Matthew 2. Let's get now to, to look, take a look at Herod the man. In the New Testament, there are two Herods mentioned, among many others of the same family. 
The most famous one is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod of the ministry of Jesus. That's gonna, we're going to see a lot about him in about 30 years in the life of Jesus. This is the Herod of Jesus' ministry years, and he was the son of Herod the Great. The Herod that we're looking at here in chapter 2 of Matthew is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, we need to talk about him in order to understand his reaction to the birth of the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews. He was somewhat, I like to classify as an evil genius. Let's talk about his genius. And his genius, and I do mean his genius, his genius is on display even to this day in the land of Israel. And his genius is displayed in his works of engineering, architecture, and building. Amazing, amazing places that he built. Not least among them is Caesarea Maritima. It's on the coast of Israel where he built from scratch a huge Roman city on the coast of northern Israel. It's beautiful. And it's complete with a, with a man-made harbor during the construction of which he was the first man to pour underwater concrete. Quite, quite the genius, quite the builder. Then, of course, there's Sebaste. We haven't heard a lot about that, but a lot of people know about the desert fortress of Masada. That's Herod. There's Herodian, which was his fortress city in southern Judea. There's much of Jerusalem that he built and rebuilt. And of course, there is the temple itself. The temple, this is the temple that was originally rebuilt during the time of Ezra. It was not much to look at. Herod comes up and he makes it this one of the most magnificent buildings in the ancient world. Not only that, but he, in he increases the size of the temple mount so that you have a 35-acre complex on top of what used to be a small hill. That's a lot of earth moving, and he had to build retaining walls all around that. That's where we get the famous wailing wall of today. That's a very small portion of the wall that Herod built. Underneath that, you can go, you can see stones, some of which, I think the largest of which is nearly 30 feet across, six feet high, and these all are complete a retaining wall that hasn't budged a millimeter in over 2,000 years with the weight of the world on one side and nothing on the other. So quite a genius. And he, so he built the temple and the temple mountain. And in fact, there's a stone named after him. It's called Herodian stone, and it bears the mark of Herod. He has this kind of edging around it that you'll recognize. And so whenever you see that in Israel, you know that this was one of Herod's project. So that's his genius. But as I said, he's an evil genius. So let's talk about his evil. He was made king of the Jews by Rome. Only the problem with that is he wasn't ethnically Jewish. He had no Jewish genetics to him. <clears throat> Furthermore, he loved all things Roman. He was a true Roman at heart. He wasn't a Jew at heart. He wasn't even physically a Jew. And these issues caused many of the Jews to despise Herod and caused him to be incredibly insecure in his position as king of the Jews. And as life went on, he grew increasingly paranoid and increasingly cruel. In fact, he murdered members of the Sanhedrin when they disagreed with him. That's the Jewish ruling council. He murdered one of his wives. He murdered his mother-in-law. Why are you guys rolling your eyes? At? No, I'm kidding. He murdered three of his sons. And it's reported that the Emperor Augustus, who was, who was his great patron back in Rome for many years, he said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than son. Not only that, but when Herod's death was imminent, he knew that nobody would mourn for him. And he wanted people to mourn for him. They probably would throw a party when he died. So what he did is he ordered that many of the leading people of Jerusalem be arrested and rounded up. And upon news of his death, they were all to be put to death so that Jerusalem would be filled with mourning at his passing. That's the evil. 
Now let's get into his backstory. When the Romans arrived in the promised land in about the year 63 BC, a man named Antipater, and this is Herod's father, he's a powerful and influential man in the area, he backed the Romans and then was made the ruler of Judea by them. However, as I mentioned earlier, there was a problem with that. Antipater's family were not ethnic Jews. They were Idumeans. That's the Roman word for Edomites. For those of us who know the Old Testament, the Edomites were from Edom. That was across from the Jordan and across the Dead Sea from Israel. They were the ancient descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and were during the whole time of their existence enemies of the Jewish people, enemies of Israel, enemies of the plan of God, enemies of the will of God. The Antipater family had converted, however, the Antipater family had converted to Judaism in the second century BC during the time that the Maccabees ruled in Israel. Then things changed. In 40 BC, the promised land was invaded from the east by, you guessed it, the mighty Parthian Empire, and Herod's family fled to Rome. There, Herod, while in Rome, Herod was proclaimed king of Judea, king of the Jews, by the emperor, was sent back with the Roman army to the promised land where he drove the Parthians back to the east and established, reestablished Roman rule, and he ruled from roughly 37 B.C. until his death in 4 B.C. So when when it tells us in earlier in Matthew that Herod was greatly troubled at the arrival of the Magi or the wise men in all Jerusalem with them. That's because it's most likely the Parthians are showing up flying the Parthian colors. This is like the blood showing up in Crips territory. It's not a real happy time for everybody involved, but that's what's going on. And so all of this to say he was never truly accepted by the Jews and certainly wasn't accepted by the Pharisees who were the most politically powerful of the Jews. This despite the fact of his amazing work on the temple and on the temple mount, it didn't make him any more loved by the people. Then as life went on, his health deteriorated. By the end of his life, right around the time that Jesus was born, it's believed he was suffering greatly from arterial sclerosis and was in great pain, mental anguish, leading to paranoia and deep insecurity. So that's kind of the backdrop for our portion this morning. And so now to our text, which picks up after the wise men, after the Magi had left to make their return home to the Parthian Empire, into verses 13 and 15 we go. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That night Joseph was warned in a dream by an angel to take Jesus and Mary and escape down to Egypt to the south-southwest as Herod was going to try to find Jesus and kill him. And as any good follower of the Lord will do, when given a commission by the Lord, Joseph wasted absolutely no time and got to it after this angelic warning. He got up in the middle of the night and left for Egypt, staying there until the death of Herod the Great. And this helped fulfill a prophecy about Jesus from, as we see in the text, Hosea 11 verse 1. 
Now, what's down in Egypt? Down in Egypt, fortunately, at this time, which was also under the control of Rome, there was a large, actually a huge Jewish population living there at the time. So Egypt would be a very welcoming place for this young Jewish family. And the trip was most likely financed by the very generous gifts of the Magi, which would have, would have blessed the family for many years to come and allowed them to do all of this. On to verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the insecure, paranoid, and evil Herod was livid that he had been outsmarted by the Magi, by the wise men. He ordered all of the little boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem murdered. These are toddlers and below. This brought about the fulfillment, again, this one of a painful prophecy from Jeremiah 31.15. And here we see, by the way, just as a note, teaching note, that the angelic warning, in my opinion, to flee Judea, was really an act of love by God. Of course, God could have protected Jesus in Israel as well as in Egypt. But since it's obvious that Herod would have kept killing Jewish children until he was sure that the Messiah was dead. So this way, fewer children were killed. And fortunately, now as they go down to Egypt, the thought might occur to you, well, if Egypt is under the control of Rome and Herod is a Roman ruler, won't he just pick up the phone and call the Roman ruler in Egypt and say, hey, take care of this family? Fortunately, by this time, though, Herod had fallen out of favor because of all the things that he'd been doing because of his paranoia. He had fallen out of favor with Rome, and so his desire to kill the young Messiah would not be pursued or honored by Rome in Egypt, which they controlled at the time. Let's move on to verses 19 through 21. But when Herod, had di- when Herod died, <clears throat> excuse me, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This time, and after Herod died, an angel again, perhaps the same angel, we don't know, appeared to Joseph telling them that it was okay, come back, bring Jesus and Mary back to the land of Israel. Joseph again, as a servant of the Lord, complied immediately and set off with his family back to the promised land, taking us to verses 22 and 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that, excuse me, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Sometime during his trip north to Israel, Joseph was further warned in a dream, this time to stay away from Judea because Herod's son Archelaus was no better than his father in that respect. And the remaining sons at this time, by the way, there were three left. Herod started out with seven sons, his oldest three, one, two, and three, he murdered. Son number four, he wrote out of his will, leaving three sons to be left in the political realm. These are Archelaus, Herod Antipas, again, this is the Herod of the uh, later Gospels, and his son Philip. 
Joseph settled his family back in Nazareth in the district of Galilee. This, by the way, is, is, is at the time a backwater, no-name town. This is the town of no good things that Nathaniel spoke of when his brother told him, come see the Messiah. And he says, he's from Nazareth. And he said, can any good thing come from there? And so this is the town of no good things. Now, at the time, Galilee was ruled by Herod Antipas, the younger Herod of the two. And if you're unfamiliar with the geography of the Holy Land at this point, it's in essence this. And now we're talking west of the Jordan, of course. West of the Jordan, Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north with Samaria in between those. In the south, going to be ruled by Archelaus. In the north, going to be ruled by Herod Antipas. And so that's our verse-by-verse study. And now I want to get to kind of our final thoughts, which center around the whole purpose of our Advent series of reactions, different reactions to the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. And this morning we're looking at Herod, and I call him a man unwilling to give up his throne. Herod was a usurper of David's throne. A usurper is someone who takes the throne that does not belong to him or her, has no claim nor right to it. Remember, Herod wasn't ethnically Jewish, and he certainly wasn't of the line of David, and those are a prerequisite to be truly the king of the Jews. That is why the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke of Jesus, one believed to be from his mother Mary, that's Luke, one to believe from his stepfather Joseph, both of them give him the right to sit upon David's throne. Mary's claim is a little stronger than Joseph's, but that's not the purpose of this morning. Herod, though, was a usurper to the throne of David. This means that although Rome had installed him as king of the Jews and he bore the the title king of the Jews, he still had no right nor claim to the throne of Israel. So when a massive and most likely heavily protected caravan of magi arrived from the mighty Parthian kingdom, again an enemy of Rome, it's like the blood showing up in Crips territory, in order to acknowledge and worship the true king of the Jews, Herod's world is sent into a tailspin. And Herod's reaction is therefore not to welcome the true king, but to murder the true king. Now, what in the world does that have to do with us today? Well, the full title of the risen Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord part of that title that I want to look into a bit as we end here this morning. So, as a teacher, I'd like to have a cookies on the bottom shelf definition of all the theological terms we typically use in the scriptures. One, because I like to keep it simple for those to whom I teach, but I like to keep it simple because I'm just a simple guy. And the cookies on the bottom shelf definition of Lord is technically master of me. Now, I understand the theological and the Greek implications of, of the term in the Greek, but I like to do the cookies on the bottom shelf, which basically means master of me, and it is the language of a slave to his or her master. It is the language of a bondservant to his or her master. Lord means master of me, and in essence means your life is theirs to command. Now, the problem with this in my life, and maybe in your life as well, is that I've, I've been born and lived in, for 60 years now, the land of the free. And because of that blessing of growing up and living in the land of the free, I don't understand slave terminology. I don't understand what it is like to address a human being as the master of me. And so I can call Jesus Lord by the Greek term, but really, in fact, it doesn't have a real-life meaning to me. However, something in my past comes to my rescue, and so it's easy for me, if, you, if y'all don't mind, if I personalize this a little bit to make this point, 
in my life, there's something that comes to my rescue in this regard in my life. Way, way back in the 80s, decades ago, I was once an enlisted man in the U.S. Navy. And as an enlisted man in the U.S. Navy, I had to call every officer by the title of sir. Now, back in the 80s, only males were stationed on combat vessels at the time, and we didn't have female enlisted or officers. Today, it would be different. It would be sir and ma'am. But back then, it was only sir. And every officer in my chain of command, every single one, had absolute control of my life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and just for a bonus, 366 days a year when leap year comes around. If they said jump, it was my it was my duty to ask how high. If they said go to the left, I went to the left. If go to the right, I go to the right. Work all night, work all night. Work all day, work all day. That was my life. They owned me lock, stock, and barrel. That's because to enter into the U.S. Navy, I gave up my constitutional rights and entered into agreement to live under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And therefore, the, for me, the word sir has a great deal of meaning. In fact, they were all of those men that I had to call sir were technically masters of me. Now that makes sense to me. For this reason, I often call God sir in my prayers because it's real and has meaning to me where Lord typically doesn't. Why am I saying all this? Because there is a throne in each of our lives and someone is sitting on that throne. For the follower of Christ, it's either us or it's Christ himself. We either allow him to sit on the throne of our lives or we do not. Now, in our world today, myriads and myriads of people, hopefully hundreds of millions, if not over a billion people, have thankfully been forgiven their sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is wonderful and great. And who does not want to be forgiven by their sins? But far less of that number, I will wager, and just basing it off on my own life, far less of that number actually serve Jesus Christ as their Lord, or in other words, truly make him the master of me. Now we want to, why is that? We want to be forgiven, but as fallen sinful people, human beings, we also want to remain on the throne of our lives. We want to be forgiven, but we want to remain on the throne of our lives. Oh, how we love being the captain of our own ship, how we love being the master of our own destiny. And so for me, I asked Jesus for his advice once in a while from time to time, in good years more often than not. And we ask Jesus, I tend to ask Jesus for his advice, and especially when I've messed up, I, I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to let you sit on the throne for a while here, if you don't mind, because I've really botched it up. I know none of you have ever done this, but I've really botched it up from time to time, and then I will give that lordship over to him, and he will make things right and put things right with my ship or my life. And then when things are sailing again, I kind of like, okay, Lord, I think I got this from here, and I'm back on the throne of my life. And when that's true, he is not our Lord. He is not the master of me. And this is the great Advent message of Herod. It is a warning to us. He was absolutely unqualified to sit on the throne that he sat on as we are of ours. Yet there was no way that he would give up his throne to the one who was qualified to sit upon it. You see, Jesus was truly Jewish and truly of the line of David. He met the requirements. That's why, again, why the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are so important. He was a descendant of David. And so we see that we don't want to be like Herod in this respect. 
We want to be those who welcome Jesus to the throne of our lives to be the master of me. Now we have this horrible example of someone who did not want Jesus to sit on the throne in Herod the Great. Is there a positive example, something that goes the other way in Scripture? And the answer to this is yes, and it's a fantastic example. And it comes to us in the lives of two men way, way back in the history of Israel. It's like, I feel like the, the baseball announcer, back, 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 way back against the wall. We go way back into the history of Israel, and we come to two great friends in ancient Israel. They are Jonathan and David. We all know who David is. David is the king promised by God. Back in Genesis 49, when Jacob was, was about to breathe his last, he was prophesying over his sons, and he prophesied that a king will one day come to Israel, and he will come of the line of Judah. That was always God's plan, that there be a king and a kingdom, and God was going to wait for a man named David. However, Israel was a little impatient, and before that time, they clamored to God, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And so God did give them a king. He gave them a man named Saul, and he gave Saul every advantage, and Saul started out really well, finished poorly. Like Herod, he became insecure and hostile to those he thought would challenge his throne because at some point, God says, Saul, I've rejected you as king. Now, Saul had a son, and his name was Jonathan. And Jonathan, to me, is one of the most remarkable men in Scripture. In fact, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the man I most want to sit down with in heaven and speak with is Jonathan because of the massive display of the loyalties on every level that he showed us in his life. And this is one of those ways. So God has rejected Saul as king. Jonathan, as the oldest son of Saul, is the crown prince of Israel. That throne is his when his father dies. He has every right to it. It is legitimate, and there's nothing wrong. Saul, however, is, is, knows that someone else is going to come, and he's paranoid and insecure like Herod was. Jonathan, his son, was not. And so Jonathan and David became great friends as they fought Israel's battles, the Lord's battles together. They had that great camaraderie that men in the trenches often find during the protracted struggle of warfare. They became a band of brothers. Well, they, were, they had a great brotherhood of love between them, great love. They were closer than brothers, as the scripture would say. And so we understand all of that of their great friendship. But now let's go back to that place. It's called the Valley of Elah, where Goliath and David fought. Now, it wasn't much of a fight. It was for pretty quick, but this was the battle. We know the story. David is sent by his father, Jesse, to take some food to a couple of his brothers who were in the army with Saul. And as David arrives on scene, he sees this nine and a half foot warrior giant down on the, in the middle of the valley between the two armies, taunting the nations of Israel. He does this, I think, morning, noon, and night, something like that. He does that. And, and everyone's shaking in their boots, including Saul and Jonathan, who, by the description that we have of Saul, him closest has to be close to seven foot tall. He's a big man himself. It says that he was, he was head and shoulders taller than all the host of Israel. So let's assume that Israel, the ancient Israelites, were as short as I am. I'm five foot five. From shoulder here, that's another foot. That means at a bare minimum, Saul is six and a half feet tall, probably closer to seven. His son Jonathan probably follows in his footsteps. That's why David, when he mourned them, he said, how the mighty have fallen. I mean, these were amazing, incredible men. And David comes and he sees this scene and he sees the armies of Israel shaking in their boots and he's angry, he's livid that no one steps forward. And remember before this, Jonathan himself has shown great faith when he, he and his armor bearer charged a Philistine outpost and had great victory over that. But even Jonathan is quailing at the sight of Goliath and David says, what will be done for the man who, who, 
who vanquishes this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine who challenges the armies of the living God. So they grab him and they take him into the tent with Saul. And, and, and David says, look, let me go fight the guy. And, and Saul looks at him. He says, David, look, I, I appreciate you. And I know all you've done for me over the years. And, but, but you're just a young man. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. Look at the guy. You don't stand a chance against him. David said, my king, you're wrong. I'm paraphrasing here. You guys understand. My king, you're wrong. And, and let me tell you why, because God is greater. Let me, let me tell you what happened in my life, King. I'm just a shepherd boy. Yes, it's true. But there was a time when a lion came and took one of my sheep, and I went after that lion, and I killed that lion myself and rescued my sheep. A bear came along and took one of my sheep. I went after that bear, and I killed that bear, and I got my sheep back. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like the lion, and will be just like the bear. Let me go fight him. Saul says, well, here, here's my armor. Well, David tries on his armor. It's really cumbersome. He doesn't know how to use these. I, I can't use this. I don't know what it's about. Now, later in his life, he'll fight in armor and all of that. But right now, he says, I just need to fight him as a shepherd boy. He goes down to the, to the little brook, picks up five smooth stones, puts one in a sling, and runs at Goliath, heaves one, hits him in the forehead, knocks him down, cuts off his head. Great victory. The Philistines are, are put to flight, and Israel has a great victory that day. Now we move back up on top of the hill. This would be the northern hill where the Israelites were camped, and there is the tent of Saul. And there's an interesting scene that takes place inside of that tent. And again, I'm kind of amalgamating some things for brevity here this morning. And one of the things, there's the reaction of Saul, and there's the reaction of Jonathan. The reaction of Saul is he turns to, I believe it was Joab, his commander, and says, whose son is that? As he looks at what David did. Now, they all knew who David was, that he was the son of Jesse. But I think, and, and Joab says, to be honest, my Lord, I, I don't know. They were thinking, is this kid an angel? Where is he come from heaven to defeat? I mean, can this really be the son of a man? Is he really a human being? That's what they were thinking. And, and Saul grew suspicious of David because that he enjoyed the victory. But there was a different reaction when David came up to the tent. It says that Jonathan, and, and I think this is missed by a lot of commentators uh, in, here in this world that, that talk about this. Jonathan did something really strange that's not often talked about. It said he, he took off his cloak and he put it on David. Now, this is the cloak of the crown prince. There would be markings on this cloak that would identify him as Israel's next king. And what does Jonathan do with that cloak? He takes it and he puts it over the shoulders of the one he knows is God's choice. He has every right to that throne. But he says, no, David, the throne is for you. And later in life, he would say these words to David. Everyone knows, including my father, that you will be king in Israel and I will be second to you. This is one of the reasons I want to talk to that man. What an incredible, he was loyal Despite the craziness of his father, he was loyal to his father. He was loyal to his family. He was loyal to the anointing upon David. He was loyal to Israel. He was loyal to God. Loyal, loyal, loyal. Wow, what a great man. So there it is. This is the story of Jonathan. We have Herod, who will never let the rightful king sit on the throne. And we have Jonathan, who says, the throne is all yours. And this is our choice that we have this Advent season as we consider Jesus coming. Do we have Herod's reaction to God's true king? Is he our sir? Is he our Lord? Is he the master of me? Do we vacate our throne so that he may sit on it? Do we have Jonathan's reaction to God's true king? Here is the throne of my life. Sir, command me. 
I am yours. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.